Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. So, uh, today we're looking at the parable of the ten minas. Minas were coins. Uh, I think a mina was about three months' wages. Uh, now, this uh, parable is interesting because Jesus seems to have told it twice. Uh, he also, in Matthew 25, we're looking at Luke 19 today, but in Matthew 25, Jesus tells a very, 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 very similar parable, but uses it slightly differently. Uh, in that uh, context, it's the, often known as the parable of the talents, uh, or, and it's about stewarding our gifts. But uh, I think um, mainly because they were trying to make it harder for me, pastors Pete and Adam decided to give me the Luke 19 version, which is less about stewarding down gifts and more about, as I mentioned, I might have mentioned before, judgment. So um, that's what we're doing today. Ten meaners, don't blame me, but feel free to write letters of uh, complaint to pastors Pete and Adam. So... Uh, Sharon is going to come and read, and I, I'm, I'm so sorry, this is the word of Jesus, so I, I'm, not, I'm not apologizing for it. It's good to look at the tough stuff. And this is Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. If you're able to do so, let's stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. Luke 19, 11 to 27. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king, and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it and laid it away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be a king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Thanks be to God. Do be seated. And yes, you did hear the last phrase there was 
kill them. So, um, <laughs> here we go. Richard the Lionheart, King Richard I, ruled over England, 1189 to 1199. But uh, as I'm sure you recall, he spent uh, the first half of his reign abroad, uh, fighting in the Crusades, and then uh, rather awkwardly on his way home to England, uh, somewhere before he reached um, the you know, P&O ferry or whatever, he got captured and so he was imprisoned and eventually he escaped and got back to England. Whilst he was gone, his brother John uh, assumed the throne. And if any of you have ever watched or read Robin Hood will remember, you know, there's the dastardly King John and the good Richard the Lionheart of this period. And when eventually Richard I made it back to England, he forgave his brother John and got himself crowned a second time uh, in Winchester Cathedral. The story that Jesus is telling in this passage is strikingly similar. It is about uh, a returning king whose reign is delayed and contested. And Jesus, we know, was describing an actual, factual, historical event that would have been very familiar to his listeners. As he's telling this parable, they're nodding and maybe even smiling knowingly. See, uh, let me explain. Verse 12, Jesus says, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king. As you do. Well, we know that... um, there had been some very significant events in Jesus' own childhood when Herod the Great died and his son Archelaus uh, had to travel to Rome, to a distant land, to have himself officially appointed as king. Why? Because Rome was in charge. So to be king of Judea, you had to go to Rome and get your, you know, the Facebook like. Verse 14, Jesus says, But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. And sure enough, the Judeans hated Archelaus for some pretty good reasons. And they sent a delegation to Rome to contest his appointment. It was unsuccessful. And therefore, as Jesus says in this story, in spite of that delegation, he was appointed king. He was crowned. Okay, so that's interesting. Jesus is taking this historical story that they were all very familiar with, and he's using it, retelling it to make a point. But why is he choosing to do it here and now? Straight after, if you read back in Luke 19, he's just had his encounter in the city of Jericho with Zacchaeus. Remember the little short Zacchaeus who climbs a tree and then Jesus spots him and he comes down, comes to his house for tea. Zacchaeus repents of being a seriously dodgy accountant and uh, they do exist, they've always existed. And he uh, gives uh, half of his money away immediately and to anyone that he's wronged, he gives four times back. So it's a pretty amazing Point, moment of repentance. And it's straight after that, Jesus breaks into telling them this sort of historical story. What's going on? Well, the first reason he does it is this. Archelaus, 
uh, wasn't just someone that everyone in Judea knew about, but Archelaus had built a magnificent palace in Jericho and also an aqueduct. That means that Archelaus wasn't just an interesting national figure. They, if you lived in Jericho, you were thinking about Archelaus a lot because you saw the palace and you saw the aqueduct. So Jesus has been very deliberate with choosing this story in this particular place. Secondly, we're actually given the answer to the question, why is Jesus telling this story here, in verse 11. Because uh, Luke says, Jesus told them this parable because... He was near Jerusalem, and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So there's this like buzz, this hype. Jesus has been journeying towards Jerusalem. The miracles are building up. Now there's been this dramatic moment with Zacchaeus. And guess what? The crowd is getting excited. People are getting in super intense. Doesn't happen today, of course. And they're thinking, what's going to happen when he finally makes it to Jerusalem? Jesus is somehow trying to diffuse hype. And he is using this story to reframe their expectations about what the king and the coming of the kingdom might look like. Jesus is making some very clear comparisons between Archelaus in this story and himself. Firstly, he too is a king hated by many. And we're, of course, when he reaches Jerusalem, about to find out just how hated he is. Who is going to have to depart to a distant land to have himself appointed to see the king of kings, the emperor, the Lord God Almighty. He is going to go and then when he returns, he's going to return in full power. Hello? Yes? This is, this is profoundly Christian. And the coming of his kingdom, when he returns, will be fiercely contested and bitterly delayed. Hello? It's been significantly delayed. I think we can agree on that. Meanwhile, those who find themselves as in-betweeners between the first coming of this king and the return of the king... How are they, the servants, supposed to live in this environment? People are hating him. He's delayed. Everything's contested. Well, we are called to uh, live faithfully and intentionally and wisely, not passively. Please note, I must put in a little warning here. One of the risks with any parable is people overinterpret it. And every single little thing has to have some meaning. And it's a well understood uh, principle of of, of biblical studies. You've got to work out what is the main point in a parable and not try and, you know, if Jesus happened to, I don't know, pull the fish out with his left hand, then someone ends up doing a 12-part series on the significance of being left-handed. It's like, no, it just might have been... Do you understand? We mustn't over-interpret this. And so in this context... Jesus is not identifying himself entirely with Archelaus, who was definitely cruel, uh, unscrupulous. And, uh, you know, if you, if you need proof of that, immediately before this parable, uh, Jesus' words to Zacchaeus or about Zacchaeus are, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. This is the heart of Jesus. Not cruel, not unscrupulous, but one, a king who comes to seek and save the lost. 
However, neither can we sanitize this moment entirely to remove everything that we, sitting in Guildford in the 21st century, might feel a little uncomfortable about. N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, says this, we cannot flatten the story out or creep nervously round its sharp edges because Luke has made sure in the rest of the chapter that the meaning will stay with us. Jesus' tears over the city, his stern action in the temple, remember he cleanses the temple, indicate well enough that the judgment at the end of this parable was meant to be taken seriously. Judgment is real. The return of Christ will be, and we see this throughout the Old and New Testament, a day of great wailing as well as rejoicing because it will be a moment of both life and death. So here we are trying to live our lives between the first coming of the king and the return of the king. He's gone off to a distant land. He's going to come back in full power, Philippians chapter 2. How are we supposed to live as in-betweeners. And I want to just say two simple things, and then we're going to pray for some people. The first from this parable is that we're called to live proactively, not passively. And the second is that we're called to live contentedly and not competitively. And the sharp, sharper ones amongst you may be thinking, well, those sound like there's a little bit of a tension between those two. You're right. First of all, proactively, not passively. It is extraordinarily clear in this passage that the king expects the servants not just to kind of bury the treasure and be passive, but to get active and do something with the talents, the minas, the gifts that he has given. They are expected to exercise initiative and indeed are rewarded for the initiative that they exercise. Some people have interpreted uh, this uh, parable and also the Matthew 25 version as a sort of manifesto for capitalism. I'm not sure we can go quite that far, but there is some principle here of take what God has given you and jolly well do something with it, or you are going to miss out and may even be judged for not having made the most of what God has blessed you with. The passive and lazy servant is rebuked for wasting the gifts that God has given him. We all, of course, feel a little bit sorry for that servant. Why didn't he do anything with the mina that he had been given? And he answers that question. He says he was afraid. He was, he was fearful. He was paralyzed by anxiety. Verse 21, I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. And so like a rabbit caught in the headlights, <gasps> he buried his in a napkin and did nothing. The biggest enemy of your destiny is anxiety and fear, the fear of failure, the fear of rejection, 
It's not that God hasn't given you a calling, hasn't given you gifts, but that the world, the flesh, and the devil will conspire to paralyze you and stop you doing something extraordinary with the things that God has already given you. You, I'm sure, know that story. Uh, uh, There's a transcript of a radio conversation between an American naval vessel and the Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995. The uh, American ship said, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. The Canadians said, no, you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Typical Canadians. The Americans then reply, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. The Canadian says, no, I say again, you divert your course. The Americans, this is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's one five degrees north. Or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadians reply, this is a lighthouse, your call. (laughs) Well, some of us in life are naturally more like static lighthouses waiting for the world to come to us. And some of us are wired more as naval vessels venturing forth on great adventures. I believe that God is looking for true partnership, his will with our wills, his initiative with our initiative. St. Augustine put it beautifully like this. He said this, without God, we cannot, but without us, God will not. He said again, without God, we cannot, but without us, God will not. And so God is looking at you today saying, what are you doing with the things that I have given you? Those spiritual gifts, those natural gifts, those material gifts. What are you doing? How are you seeking to grow those gifts for my glory as an in-betweener? Too many Christians, having been in pastoral ministry for more than a quarter of a century now, I can tell you this. Too many Christians are passive in their relationship with God. The mentality we can easily develop is, well, look, he's God, so I guess if he wants to do it, he's going to do it. (coughs) Wrong. Or God doesn't need me. God, it doesn't matter what I do or say. Who am I? Some of you probably found it hard at the start when I asked you to list your gifts I mean, if we're in Texas, everyone would be like, oh, sure, I've got that printed out in my back pocket, but we're, we're British. I, I haven't had a gift since the age of six when my father gave me a bent coin. You know, it, it, it's Hugh Grant. Oh, no, 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 it's all that, you know. But C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself. Less. There are times to just accept, I have some gifts. By definition, they're from God. So don't take too much credit for them. If you've got more money than the person next to you, don't, don't kid yourself, oh, it's because I'm just so utterly brilliant that you know, I've, been, I've had I mean, this amazing bonus scheme. 
and you'll get to you'll get to judgment day and go oh rats god didn't see it that way do you, do you understand but 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 uh, we, we, we become passive when we start to think, well, God's just going to do it anyway. People, I've seen this often, will think that God's a micromanager, and so they start to pray for guidance. It's not about the big stuff. Of course you should pray about whether this is the person you should marry or whether you should quit your job. But they're asking sort of for guidance about which toothbrush to buy. You know, and, and, they, and, and, and they get sort of paralyzed with indecision, and it's easier especially if you're a type 9 Enneagram, it's easier to uh, decide, oh, well, I'm just going to pray about everything because then everything's God's decision. And if my life doesn't work out, it's his fault. Speaking as someone married to a type 9 who, uh, not that any of us believe in the Enneagram, of course, but, but, uh, you know, I mean, the hours of my life spent waiting for Sammy to make a decision in front of a menu uh, is... Is one of the great graces that has refined my character <laughs> over the years. You know, we got some friends, a lovely, lovely couple, Dave and Molly Blackwell, live in Kansas City. They grew up in Chicago, high school sweethearts, just great together, uh, like fish and chips. They just belong together, like bacon and eggs. Great relationship. Eventually, you know, they got to 18 and he proposed to her, and she immediately, without a single second of second thought, said yes. And then they moved to Kansas City into what I would say was quite a super spiritual environment where someone sat them down and said, but have you had a word from God about getting married? And they went into absolute sort of terror about, oh, we haven't had a prophecy. You know, we, 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 you know, we just like each other a lot, get on really well, both love Jesus and thought we might get married. And, and almost have called it off, waiting for a prophecy. And you imagine God going, look, I'm kind of busy here, guys. <laughs> you know? and, and eventually had to realize the greatest gift God wants to give most charismatics is common sense. <laughs> My mom, God bless her, when she was fit and healthy... I don't want to stereotype here, but she's Scottish, and I do think it's relevant because she she's just fiercely sensible and practical. And uh, I remember one time, Sammy and I had just moved to Guildford. We were living actually in a vicarage um, uh, that, that, that was in between vicars out uh, in Merrow, and um, we, we, we were about to be kicked out, and, and so we needed to find a house. And we we really got our knickers in a twist praying about where in Guildford we were supposed to buy a house and, you know, it's cheaper if you go to the never eat shredded wheat, the east, uh, west of the A3, you know, and the, all that stuff. Do we want to be in the center of town? All that. We're praying and praying. And my mum came along and she said this. I don't know why you're praying about it. She loves Jesus. I don't know why you're praying about this. She said, look, here's the deal. Both your boys are at schools now on the Epsom Road. At the time, because of Sammy's epilepsy, she, she wasn't allowed to drive. So she said, so you need to be within half an hour's walk of the boys' schools. And we went, oh, yeah. And we just went, went to the estate agents, drew like a half-hour circle around the schools. And that's how we found the house that, that we lived in for many years and, and absolutely loved. And um, so sometimes God is looking for our initiative. And we've we got to be a bit careful. We don't always defer unhealthily to him. You can only steer a ship in motion. Look at it here in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 to 10. I find this fascinating about... 
the Apostle Paul's attitude to guidance. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Don't know how the Holy Spirit kept him from doing it, but he did. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Don't know how that happened. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. And during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Oi, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Paul's mission, he wanted to get to Rome. Like he, He's like, okay, I'm going to get to Rome and preach the gospel there. That's his mission. And he's just going about doing it. And then every now and then, God seems to break in and say, no, stop, don't go there, go over here. But that's my, often my experience of God. I take initiative, seeking to live for his glory, and he's more than able to speak and to interrupt and to intervene when I'm about to go in the wrong direction. So some questions that you might like to consider uh, this summer. First one, what gifts, however small, has God given me? And we did an initial exercise on that, but you might want to write them down. It's quite a good thing. I think you'll be surprised. Maybe use those three characters, characters um, spiritual, natural, and material. What gifts has God given me? Secondly, are there any gifts that I am currently burying, wrapping in a napkin, doing nothing with? Because this parable is pretty fiery. There's a serious warning about neglecting gifts God's given you. I'm not saying you can do everything all at once, but let's make sure we don't neglect gifts. Some people are like, I want this gift. You know, I want to be a preacher or whatever it is. And then God's given them a totally different gift they're neglecting. Like, what gifts has God given you? And are you burying any? Thirdly, how might I invest one of my gifts more fruitfully for God's glory? How might I grow it, multiply its impact? There are many people in this building right now who do this brilliantly. I can see Simon and Claire over there. They don't know I was going to say this, but Sam and I are around having dinner with a young couple recently who've got a couple of kids, another one on the way, and they just casually, we said, do you guys ever manage just to get out for like a date? And they said, do you know what? Simon and Claire Jones sometimes come round and, you know, book a table for us somewhere, kick us out the door and just look after our kids. And it's not just they come and babysit, but they've, they've taken time to really get to know the kids so that, you know, there's a strong relationship. And they're quietly doing that. I'm quite sure Simon and Claire could have been staying out for a meal themselves or staying at home watching telly. But they're quietly using the gift they've got in this stage of life, which is a little bit more time, and using it to bless that couple. I can see Susie Papworth up there. Susie just emailed me, I think it was last week, wasn't it, Susie, saying, you know, I've really been praying about some, some things, and I was struck by that prophecy that was released at Wildfires, and uh, can you send me a transcript? There's one on the way to you, uh, Susie. But I thought, isn't that amazing? She's quietly using her gift in the realm of prayer. Uh, uh, Isway 
who is playing keys today. Israel and Anne, any of you know them or that you're lucky enough to be in their collective? No, they are some of the most hospitable people in the world. It's like you pop around to pick something up and before you know it, you've had a three-course dinner and a, and a tour of his garden and, and a short course in bonsai. It, I mean, they, just, they have the gift of, of hospitality. In the early days of this church, when we were just a handful of people meeting in the back room of a pub, there were two couples, I won't name uh, for obvious reasons, who quietly gave money that enabled us to survive and grow. And none of this would be happening today if they hadn't given financially at that time and in that way out of the gifts God had given them. Secondly, and much more quickly, as well as God uh, speaking to us through this passage about being proactive and not passive. There's a strong point here, I believe, about being content and not competitive. See, it's just so flipping unfair that someone gets one meaner and some gets five and some gets ten and then those who invest the ten and make it grow get ten cities and the others get five cities. Just so unfair. And the rewards seem unfair. And in my own life, if I can be honest with you, it is easy to resent others who seem to have more gifts than me, more money than me, more advantage than me, a nicer house than me, better opportunities in life than me. But the question Jesus asks here is not uh, how much I have, but what have I done with what God has given me? There's a lovely story about Albert Einstein, November 1922. He's on a trip to Japan, and uh, he's in an elevator and realizes he doesn't have any cash on him to tip a bellboy. And so he gives the bellboy uh, a napkin on which he had written some, uh, another kind of tip, uh, a bit of advice. Einstein wrote this on a napkin for this Japanese bellboy. He said, a calm and humble life will bring more happiness than the pursuit of success and the constant restlessness that comes with it. Great. You can imagine the bellboy going, thanks, I'd rather have had cash, but, you know. <laughs> Except for the fact that uh, in 2017, that scrap of paper with that note from Einstein sold for $1.3 million. <laughs> Not a bad tip after all. But, of course, the real tip was not the financial value that it came to have, but the message on it. Einstein was teaching contentment. He was advocating a posture in life that accepts our limitations as well as the blessings we have. The trouble, in my experience, with comparing yourself with others is that they will either either you will look better than them or they will look better than you. And the outcome in both scenarios is problematic. If you look at others and think, oh, they've got all this stuff and I'm nothing, then you'll kind of put yourself down and you know, feel miserable about yourself. If you look at others and think, actually, I'm better than them, I've got more than them, then you'll be arrogant. And so comparison with others is a really, uh, it's like a human psychosis, but it's a really unhealthy thing to do. When Sammy first got incredibly unwell, I, I, I want to be honest with you, suddenly our whole world shrunk down. There were just hundreds of things that we could no longer do, like 
Sammy couldn't drive a car, for example, which meant that every single shopping trip I had to do, which meant that an hour and a half went out of my week every school run on as she was going to a walk in the rain. And we, uh, for a long time, Sammy couldn't be on her own. And therefore, I couldn't just leave the house. And it just goes on and on. And suddenly, all these very practical restrictions came on me. And Sammy had this sort of sereneness about her. But I, I'm not nearly as holy. And uh, I started to become envious of those who seemed to have life a lot easier than us with this chronic illness. They seemed more free. And it took me a while to realize that bashing my head against the walls of the restrictions wasn't actually going to help. That what I had to do was realize I am living in a smaller room, a smaller house than I was before and than others do, but I can still make this room or this house beautiful. How do I live beautifully within these restrictions, these limitations? How can I take the good things I do still have and use those for God's glory? And so I love those words in Psalm 131. I always remember Hannah preached beautifully on this psalm once. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. And so there's much more we could say about this passage, but I've said that it's about uh, judgment and we can't soften the severity of the fact that when Jesus returns, it will be a moment of life and death. I've talked about it being uh, the, the first coming of the king and the return of the king and us as in-betweeners. And I've looked at the servants in this passage and noted how Jesus clearly expects them to be highly intentional and proactive with the gifts that they've got as they wait for his return. But also that the unfairness of this can't paralyze us like that one servant who said I'm just going to bury my gift but let's take what we've got whether it's one mina five minas or ten minas let's take the gifts God has got and let us celebrate those and seek to use those for his glory this really matters because the passage says that God is training us and preparing us through the trials and the blessings of this season to rule and reign in his future kingdom. As we are faithful with what he has given us now, we will be blessed to steward greater resources in the kingdom to come. So let's just get the band back, shall we? And uh, let's take a moment just to reflect, each one of us, as we sit here now, as we prepare ourselves, stepping into this summer season. And here are some questions that you might want to be asking yourself right now. The first thing is this. Are there gifts that you are burying or that you have hidden in your life somehow that God is calling you to pick up in this next season? I don't think there's some big heavy judgment thing. If there's a gift that you know you've wrapped in a napkin, <laughs> not done much with, I just wonder if the Spirit of God is 
inviting you. It's not too late. Just take it out of that napkin. How might you use that gift in the next season for his glory? And then another question you may want to ask yourself is this. Are you allowing fear to paralyze action in your life like that poor servant with just the one mina who was so frightened that he did nothing? Actually, as I was preparing, I, I felt like the Lord spoke to me that there's someone here that this is very literally true for you. You have a harsh boss. You just have a really harsh pretty scary boss and it's slightly paralyzing you at work and the Lord is just speaking to you saying I have put you there I have blessed you now be brave do something with where I've put you and what I've given you I wonder if some of us are crippled with comparison talked about that we look at others and think well they've just got more than me so their life is easier than mine and it's putting a big downer on us and our lives and our possibilities and the Lord's just saying hey how do you live beautifully within the room that I've placed you again as I was preparing I wonder whether there's someone here that it's particularly a relationship with a sibling, a brother or sister, who seems to have it all made. And going back to probably even when you were quite little, you internalized a very negative, low view of yourself. And that's why it's so important that this summer you make time to celebrate the gifts God has given you and begin to think, how am I going to use these for his glory? It may be that, like the story I told about Sammy and me, you are feeling the pain right now of significant restrictions and frustrations in your life. You're plagued with if-onlys and yes-buts. The Lord simply wants to again invite you to take the gifts he's given you and invest them, grow them, deploy them. Finally, I wonder if there are people here, I'm sure there are actually, who feel that you've failed, that you have squandered a gift that God has given you. And something in you thinks, well, it's just too late. I want to tell you it's not too late. Remember just before this parable, Zacchaeus, who has messed his life up massively in a matter of an hour or two, has his whole life turned around. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. It is not too late to take those gifts that you feel that you've had to lay down and to pick them up again maybe in the wake of a divorce, maybe looking back on the way you've raised children and thinking, I failed. I've not done a good job. Maybe someone here, you were pursuing a dream and for a while you thought it was a dream and then you began to realize, oh no, actually, 
it's, I, I failed. It's not worked. So I've thrown a lot out there. But if there's a specific that you know you're wanting to respond to this morning, I'm not going to invite you down the front because I want to honor your time. But you may find it helpful just to stand where you are as a way of putting a marker in saying, yes, you know, I'm not just going to drift off and have lunch and forget about this. I know God's spoken to me. And I know I need to respond. And so those who'd like to do so, um, just stand. I'd love us just to quickly pray for you wherever you are. So uh, if you know that, that, that one of those things is for you, do stand now. And just as you stand, just take a moment to talk to the Lord and tell him why you're standing. It's often good just to form words, be specific, tell him. Don't assume he knows. Now, absolutely everyone, you've got someone standing near you. So if you want to just reach out a hand towards them, let's just take them out. I want you to pray for them. I want you to bless them. You don't need to know the details. The Spirit of the Lord is moving. He's speaking. Now you just pray for them. Bless them. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. We break off every bit of condemnation. Thank you that you say there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Thank you that we are new creations. Come, Holy Spirit declare over you a new day, a new season. As Jesus says, today salvation has come to your life. just going to finish with one last song and um, as we do that I just want to encourage all those of you who stood and indeed those listening online who are responding in your hearts this is the kind of a message which you need to go and have a conversation with someone you, you need to sit someone down and say hey the Lord's really speaking to me about this and it may just be past tense like I feel like he's spoken and I've got it sorted but just hold me to it Uh, or it may be that actually you you say I'd like to talk and process this a little bit and get a bit more prayer that would be entirely appropriate